Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It sometimes seems like life is nothing but conflict these days, with heated disagreements on social media and around the dinner table. And you may be dreading a high-stakes conversation in your near future. Well, today on the program, we're talking with consultant and USU lecturer Claire Canfield. Initially inspired by his own struggles with conflict, Claire Canfield is committed to changing the way people think and feel about conflict. He says a conflict holds up a mirror to our deepest needs and most cherished hopes, and it's the doorway of opportunity for creating the change we want in our lives. And that it's common to feel trapped and stuck when we experience conflict, but there is a way out. His TEDxUSU talk is titled The Beauty of Conflict. Claire Canfield is a consultant and senior lecturer in the Department of Communication Studies and Philosophy at Utah State University with degrees in Communication Studies and a graduate certification in Alternative Dispute Mediation. And uh, we bring in now uh, Claire Canfield. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. We, uh, it's, it's nice to see you in person. We're, we're in, in different studios, but we can see each other through the glass here. It's, it's nice. We're inching our way, hopefully, knocking wood out of COVID. Yes. Um, so are you, see, you, you do consulting, right? Mm-hmm. And you're a certified mediator. Correct. And uh, you do a lot of this work, including teaching here at uh, USU. Uh, are you seeing an, an increase in conflict these days? Well, I don't know if it would necessarily be an increase, but certainly there's an intensity that I haven't seen in the past. Uh, so, for example, I, I recently have done some work um, both with the university and, and other places on de-escalating conflict, and that's just not an area that I ever thought that I would be focusing on or teaching about because typically what I want to talk about is like, how do you unlock conflict and its possibilities rather than like how do we keep from from hurting each other, right? How do we keep our conflict from becoming so escalated that it that it reaches the point of violence? So I have seen an intensity increase, but in terms of the amount of conflict, it's always been there. Right? It's conflict is just reflecting back to us that we care about things. And so conflict is always going to exist in our relationships and everywhere that we have things that we care about. I was reading an uh, interview with you, with you um, and you talked about, you kind of put a, little, a different twist on violence. I'm trying to find this. Well, I'll paraphrase. Mm-hmm. You can correct me. That one form of violence or an aspect or maybe even a result of violence is that we withdraw from each other. Yeah. And uh, we're certainly seeing that these days, uh, polarization, just separating from each other. Yeah. I think that, that violence oftentimes is, is anything that we might do to dehumanize another person. And one of the ways we can do that, um, <laughs> one of my uh, favorite scenes in the office is when Dwight starts uh, shunning Andy in the office and he... <laughs> He just stops talking to him, right, and and cuts him off and withdraws, and it's like slapping a person with silence, right? Like, you aren't worth me engaging with at all. And so certainly we can do violence in a number of ways, both in how we approach and how we withdraw. Yeah. Uh, could I have you pull your microphone just a little bit closer to your side? Absolutely. There, there we go, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that in the... Now, now we receive that as funny, but of course, you know, if, if you're involved in something like that, yeah, 
Uh, yeah, that can that can seem a, a form of violence. Yeah, it's not so funny when we're yeah. the one being slapped with silence. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 for sure. <laughs> I want to get into uh, conflict. You know, the, the conflict writ, writ large, and you teach about this and talk about this, right? Mm-hmm. World conflicts, also interpersonal conflicts. But I want to uh, back up a little bit. Um, you have said in presentations, and this will surprise people, maybe surprise yourself. You you were an avoider. Oh yeah. In early life, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, m- me being here talking with you today, Tom, would be shocking to my younger self, right? Um, if I had learned um, in my earlier years that I would spend all my time talking about conflict in front of large groups of people, I would have decided that most definitely I was living in a in hell, like on a consistent basis, because that was the last thing I ever would have wanted to do because I was an avoider of conflict. Conflict made me wildly uncomfortable, Um, not only my own, but just witnessing other people in conflict. I don't know how many of the listeners might notice that even when you're watching it or, or, or not involved personally, it can bring up really strong emotions, even physiological responses. I I would kind of feel like I had a rock stuck in my throat. It would make it difficult to breathe. And I just wanted no part of conflict. I was a really good avoider. And now it's what I discuss and think about and engage with people all the time. Uh, You tell a story of uh, how your dad handled conflict with with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Could you tell that? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, important for anyone who, like I did, avoids conflict or doesn't handle it in a way that feels very satisfying to them. Because I would say that most people are doing the very best that they can, but most of us haven't been taught how to handle it any differently than we currently do. And we usually pick up how we manage conflict from from the examples that have been around us. And this is our our parents and our siblings and on the in the classroom and on the playground and all of those places where we witness and experience conflict and we start to develop patterns. And my dad had a really difficult childhood, um, really difficult. When he was one, his mother left, took his only sister and left um, he and his four brothers behind with an alcoholic father. And he put them immediately into foster care where he spent the next four years of his life. And when he was taken back by his father, when his dad remarried, um, he remarried a fellow alcoholic who had four sons of her own, and then they had seven more kids together. And I know that's a lot of math this early in the morning, but you know there was plenty of people to be having conflict with, and he and his brothers did not get along with the stepbrothers. Um, it was as my dad described it, like trying to mix water and oil. He remembers a couple of times when they would go out into the yard and he and his brothers would line up on one side and his stepbrothers would line up on the other and they'd just throw rocks at each other. Um, They played a game called um, Bumble Peg where essentially you stand across from somebody and you take a knife and you throw it and if it sticks in between the feet of the other person, they have to bring their feet closer together. And my dad carries scars from this. and, and those, that kind of scars from violence and abuse and, and neglect, it doesn't just show up on the body. And so when he 
you know, started a family of his own and I'm one of, of eight kids. And apparently I'm a bit of an instigator. I didn't really realize this as a kid, but I got into a lot of arguments and fights and disagreements and conflicts with my siblings. And it made my dad horribly uncomfortable, which makes perfect sense, right? If you have that kind of experience with conflict as a kid, you're going to learn to want no part of it. He learned to be invisible, but when he couldn't avoid it, he would come out with, with fire, like a honey badger. Like he was going to put the other person away so that they would never have conflict with him again, right? And it perpetuated that type of, of violence. And so he'd see me and my siblings fighting and he'd want to put a stop to it immediately because it was just so uncomfortable for him to witness. And then I would often get punished for, for probably instigating the fight by being sent out into the garden to pick up a bucket full of rocks. And my dad loved to garden, more like small-scale farming. Like it, we had so many, so much uh, land that needed to be weeded. And, and we were at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, and, and so there were always more rocks than there were plants. So I'd have to go out, pick up a bucket full of rocks as a result of, of fighting. And then I would dump that bucket of rocks over the fence, and I was creating this pile that was growing faster than I was as a monument to conflict. So what I learned is... Like nothing good comes from conflict. You should avoid it. It just damages relationships. Nothing positive can come from it. So, you know, my dad influenced me and, and it makes perfect sense why I, I learned to just avoid it. So how in the world do you go from that <laughs> to, uh, you know, your TEDx USU talks called the beauty of conflict. Yeah. You, you you teach people that there's a lot of positive that can come out of conflict. Yeah. Happen the right way. How, how did you, how, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, and I'm glad that I get to, to tell this story because what I want to offer people is a sense of hope. Like if I can come from a place where I wanted nothing to do with conflict and I avoided it all the time to the point where I can see beauty in it, then perhaps there's hope for other people to be, be able to change too. So I spent a lot of years continuing to try and avoid conflict, but it got to a point where I recognized that was not gonna work. Um, I distinctly remember one night, um, probably within the first year of my marriage, we were both students at, at Weber State University and, and I, was, I was laying in bed in the dark, you know, just a few inches away um, from my spouse and there was something that was eating at me. There was. There was clearly something I cared about. I don't remember what it was exactly, but I know I was just torn up inside about it. And I knew I needed to talk about it. I needed, knew I needed to express it, figure it out. And I could not do it. I could not open my mouth. And at that moment, I realized, wow, if I do not figure out how to deal with the, these types of issues, how am I ever going to have the types of relationships I desire? And that started my journey. I started looking. <laughs> Initially, what I was looking for was a way to get out of conflicts. I wanted a magic wand to just magically make them disappear. But I learned that that doesn't exist. And that's okay because conflict isn't something to be avoided or to get rid of, but to move through. Because the conflict is just trying to show me what I care about is trying to help me see that how things are currently aren't working for me. 
that I want something different. I want change. And when I, when I began to see that perspective, it didn't feel quite so scary. It didn't mean anymore that I was broken or had done something wrong or that, that things were irreparable. It just meant I was going to have to do some work to change. One thing you uh, talk about uh, is, well, let me, let me go here first. Uh, often in presentations, you'll ask people to give you metaphors mm-hmm. for conflict. Mm-hmm. Could you share some of those? Oh, almost I've... universally, uh, have you ever gotten positive Positive ones? Yes, on occasion. Uh-huh. It's pretty yeah. rare. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty rare, but on occasion I do. And and sometimes I get metaphors that are really mixed, right? They have possibility within. But by and large, the metaphors that I hear are primarily negative, if you wanted to categorize them that way. I hear things like conflict is like a volcano that's about to erupt, right? Conflict is like drowning, Conflict is like war, like slow dancing on broken shards of glass. One of my favorites was, it's like trying to tightrope across the Grand Canyon on dental floss. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the amount of, of you know, emotion and like feelings behind some of these metaphors reveal that even if you understand intellectually, that there's nothing inherently bad about conflict. It doesn't mean it has to lead to violence. It doesn't mean that something's wrong. I think people know uh, we, we can benefit from conflict and, and talking about things and working things out, but how it actually feels gets revealed by these metaphors. And people's metaphors are beautifully descriptive of how scary that is, how it feels inevitable, how they feel powerless, hopeless. And I want those metaphors to be able to shift because it doesn't matter what I teach a person about how to deal with conflict differently. If my metaphor suggests to me that I just want no part of it. Um, And I, I might've told you this, this story before Tom, but it reminds me a little bit of when I was growing up and my dad would ask me to muck out the chicken coop. We lived on like a gentleman's farm. We always had chickens. It was my job to take care of them, feed them, water them, gather the eggs. And every summer I would have to muck out the chicken coop, which is the worst thing to do um, for a kid during the summer. I can still remember the smell of, of trying to uncover layers and layers of chicken stuff, right? That had built up over a year. And I would have to load that up in a wheelbarrow and go and spread it out over the garden. And if my dad had come to me and said, look, I've got a brand new pitchfork and I can teach you this really effective way to scoop up the most chicken stuff possible and how to push the wheelbarrow so it doesn't tip over because that happened to me too. And, and if he had come to me and said, I've got some skills and some things I want to teach you to do this better, I would have wanted no part of it because I just didn't want to muck out the chicken coop. And if people have a metaphor, you know, if they have feelings that it's like, I just don't want to do this, it feels scary and dangerous and hopeless, well, then I can't teach them anything that they're going to want to use until they start shifting the way they think about it and feel about it. And that's where I start with people. Mm. Let's take a break and then let's uh, pick up that thread and uh, begin to talk about solutions, right? And and uh, I'll have you tell a few more, more stories. 
perhaps I get you to tell a story about uh, being a roommate with the <laughs> current governor of the state of Utah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so we'll uh, we'll do that. We're talking with Claire Canfield, um, and we're talking about conflict. Uh, he specializes in uh, in conflict conflict resolution, I should say. You don't go around causing conflict, right? <laughs> well, I not, do right? a little of that, too. A little <laughs> of that, yeah. Um, uh, he is senior lecturer uh, in the Department of Communication Studies and Philosophy at Utah State University. Uh, he's a consultant as well, and we are talking about conflict. Seems like there's nothing but conflict these days. Claire Canfield says it's, it's just a part of life. It can be a positive if we, if we think about it in the ways we're going to talk about following this break. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Sea levels are creeping up along the Atlantic coast, from rocky New England shores to sandy southeastern beaches. And as the climate warms, they're rising at an increasingly fast pace. Jennifer Walker of Rutgers University recently studied the rate and causes of sea level rise at six sites between Connecticut and North Carolina. We found that at all of these sites, sea level has been rising over the past 2,000 years. But then in the last century, in the 20th century, the rates are now more than double that of the average over the last 2,000 years. She says before the year 1800, most sea level rise was caused by the natural sinking and settling of the land. And that's due to the land still readjusting from the presence of the Laurentide ice sheet, which is an ice sheet that covered a lot of North America in the last ice age. That process, called land subsidence, continues. But it is no longer the chief cause of sea level rise. At the six sites she studied, Walker found that melting glacial ice and warming oceans are now the biggest drivers. So her research underscores the dramatic changes that are already underway as the climate warms. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Support for Utah Public Radio is made possible by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater presenting Souvenir, a partnership between Florence Foster Jenkins, a wealthy socialite with an uncertain sense of pitch and key, and mediocre pianist Cosme McMoon yields hilariously off-key recitals that become the talk of New York City. Details at utahfestival.org. Org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about conflict, conflict resolution, high stakes conversations, um, and uh, dealing with conflict. We have conflict for us all over. It's a part of life. Uh, seems like with increasing polarization on the national, international uh, scale, uh, even more conflict these days. And we're talking about this and uh, get into understanding conflict and maybe making it more of a positive with Claire Canfield, who is a senior lecturer uh, in the Department of Communication Studies and Philosophy at Utah State University. And he is a consultant as well. Canfieldconsulting.net, I believe, is the, uh, is the website. Uh, so I made reference to a... A story, maybe have you mm-hmm. tell you t- tell us now. This will get us into uh, something you teach, Claire Canfield, um, 
which is conflict uh, stems from people's values, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's almost never about whatever you're fighting about. In, the, in this case, in this story, I think you're fighting about the dishes. Yeah, which I, I think a lot of people fight about. I don't think I'm the only one that has had some sort of conflict about the dishes. I mean, I've had myself, I've had four decades worth of conflicts around dishes. It started when I was a little kid and um, I, I mentioned that I'm one of eight kids, and my my mom's favorite joke growing up when people would ask her, how many kids do you have? She'd say, I have eight dishwashers, right? <laughs> we didn't have an actual dishwasher, but she, <laughs> you know, she thought that was hilarious, and I thought that was the worst joke ever because I had to do the dishes, you know, on my night, and we would rotate. But I hated doing that, and so I would make up all sorts of arguments and excuses, and I would try to gaslight my mother and make and say, you know, it's not my night. I switched, or I did it last time. And if I did have to do it, I would do things like stick dirty dishes in the oven so that I wouldn't have to wash them, or I'd purposely do a poor job. So, I mean, I spent all my childhood years trying to get out of washing the dishes and having fights about it. And then I went to college, um, is what you're referencing, and I thought that I wouldn't have any more arguments about dishes because I was rooming with my three best friends and we had, unlike a lot of college students, many dishes. A lot of college students are dish poor. They have a a knife and a fork and a spoon and one plate and one bowl, and they've got to wash it if they want to eat again, right? But we had boxes and boxes of dishes because I worked at at the DI, which is like a thrift store (laughs) locally, for a couple of weeks. And I want to talk about why it was just a couple of weeks. But that's a story for another time. But we had all of these dishes that were just going to get thrown out because they got so many donations. So I took them to college. And we literally had cupboards full of dishes, (laughs) which meant if you didn't want to wash a dish after you ate on it, you just stick it in the sink and get another one, right? So... Monday morning, have a bowl of Lucky Charms and then stick it in the sink. And Tuesday morning, just get out another bowl. But the the sink would fill up and the other sink would fill up and it started to flow out onto the countertops. And by Friday, I've got some of my roommates eating Lucky Charms out of mixing bowls with wooden spoons and drinking tang out of mason jars, but nobody's washed a single dish all week long. And I didn't see a problem with that until the weekend when everyone else would go home and I would be stuck there with a, a kitchen full of dishes, which is a problem for me because I was dating my future spouse and I wanted to spend time with her. But nobody wants to come over to my apartment with the funky fermenting Lucky Charm milk at the bottom of the sink and the half-eaten burritos with congealed ketchup, you know, that because uh, my, my dear roommate, the current governor of Utah, would put ketchup on his Lynn Wilson burritos. And I don't know if that's still the case. Um, and I'm certainly sure that that wasn't his, you know, political platform. But for me, it was rough to have to do all of that and then have them come home and not say anything about it and just get out another bowl of Lucky Charms, right? And so I was really upset about this. Again, I had conflict over dishes, but it wasn't about the dishes. And that, I couldn't see it at the time. I can see it now. But our conflicts are just rarely about what we think they're about. As a kid, it wasn't about having to do the dishes and having a turn. It was about I wanted to be independent. I didn't want to be told what to do. So it wouldn't have mattered what my parents gave me as a chore. I, what I really cared about and what I was in conflict over was being my own independent self and making choices for myself. And at college, 
wasn't about those dishes. It was about wanting to be respected and feeling like the relationship wasn't what I thought it was. Because I thought, well, if we were really good friends, they wouldn't just leave the dishes behind, right? And I know it was absolutely not about the dishes because I created a solution for this. At least what I thought in my college, you know, 18-year-old mind was a brilliant, just just an amazing, you know, stroke of genius to create the chore wheel, which was uh, <laughs> living room boy, bathroom boy, garbage boy, and dishes boy. And everybody had a job each week and you would rotate it on Sunday and then I didn't have to do the dishes every time anymore, right? Just once every four weeks. And I thought, problem solved. But it wasn't satisfying to me. I actually still felt like I was in conflict because some of my roommates, you know, would would tease me a little bit and be like, well, I guess it's time to clean the bathroom because I'm bathroom boy this week, right? And another roommate left three bags of garbage around the garbage can until 11.59 on Sunday night before he took it out, right? There was kind of this passive aggressive resistance happening because it wasn't about the dishes for them either. It probably threatened their sense of independence where I start like, I'm going to tell you what to do, right? And I've created this chore wheel and that kind of thing. That probably didn't feel good to them either. So here we are having arguments about the dishes when it's not about the dishes. And for all of us, how are we how are we expecting to find any sort of resolution around our conflicts if we're not even having the right conversations? Um, This is revealed in some research done by um, John Gottman, um, where he talks about 70%, 70% of all conflicts in long-term committed relationships, so think, you know, married relationships, are repeat conflicts. They are perpetual, and they have not found any sort of resolution. That means we keep having these fights about the same thing over and over again because it's not about that. Hmm. How are we supposed to ever get past it when we're having the wrong conversations? So how do we have the right conversations? How do we get there? Yeah, so that starts with becoming aware of who we are and what we care about and what our conflicts arise from. Where are they really located? Because it's a lot more like like if you've ever seen a a glacier, most of it is underneath the water, an iceberg, right? 80% or more of an iceberg is under the water. That's those needs and those, those sources of conflict. And we pay attention sometimes to just that little bit that's on the surface. So if we can develop awareness about the things we care about and the values that we have, we can start to see why, does, why do the dishes bother me? Why does this seemingly small thing really matter to me because did you know people have really intense conversations about which way you're supposed to put the toilet paper roll on (laughs) i can imagine (laughs) yes yeah and it's not really about the toilet paper roll it's about something deeper it's about things like our identity and our relationships and our values and those things that matter deeply to us Hmm. um i'm curious before we get into some more of your you know solutions how did you how did you go from that night lying next to your wife 
torn up inside, recognizing that if we can't talk, if I can't talk about this, then what? Yeah. <laughs> what hope is there? How'd yeah. you go from that to to finding, uh, you know, your path forward? In yeah. There? And what might be useful about that is my path forward is the same path forward that that conflict invites us into, which is a change process. You know, how do we create the changes that we want? in ourselves and our relationships and in the world around us. And it has to start with awareness. You cannot change what you cannot see. And unfortunately, m- many times we don't take time to pay attention. We don't, we don't search and look for what matters to us. How do we, how do we start to engage in self-reflective processes that help us look inwards instead of focusing on what other people are doing wrong, right? That's our tendency in conflict is to look out and see what the other person is doing wrong instead of looking inwards. So for me, I had to start looking inwards and find out, well, you know, relationships really matter to me. And and once I realized that, the next step is, am I willing to do something about it? Willingness is the readiness to act, to do something. And the way you get willingness is to recognize beauty and affliction. And for me, there was affliction. My relationships were not how I wanted them to be, right? And I was suffering because I wasn't handling things well. And I was, I was creating problems and, and patterns that weren't healthy. And that wasn't working for me. So when I looked at that and I felt right the affliction and how I didn't want to be that way, right? I couldn't keep living that way. It gave me the, the willingness and motivation to start searching for something different. So I had to take the next step of, of starting to gain some knowledge. I took some classes on, on communication. I was looking for that magic wand at first, trying to just make it all go away. But I started to learn things about myself and patterns and, and ways of perhaps approaching things differently. And I just, I kept exploring it, but it took me a number of years. Like it was a little bit like dipping my toe in the pool and it, it was a little scary and cold and I pulled back and, you know, I eased myself into it over a number of years, but, but I kept being drawn back to exploring conflict because I knew how much it mattered that I figure out how to do it differently. Was there a moment, it might've been just over time, but was there a moment where you had success hmm. and, and started to feel like, okay, maybe my metaphor isn't walking on broken, broken glass. It can be yeah, positive. Yeah. Bit by bit, but there were certainly moments that were really hopeful for me. Right. And I wish that I could say that it was a single moment that just was life-changing and transformed me. And I think many of us wish that that's how life was sometimes, right? Like I just hit this point and everything changes and I'm totally different. But for me, it was much more incremental. I made little shifts that made a big difference over time. And those little shifts have continued to accumulate to the point where, you know, I have learned a great deal about myself and I've learned how what I did didn't work and I've learned different ways to handle it. And those things have been much more generative and life-giving and have encouraged me to keep moving forward. Mm. I know you do, I've been reading you, you do role-play in classes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I imagine a lot of the students come in with these attitudes about conflict because that's what they've grown up with, you know, negative attitudes. Yeah. And uh, then you, you say you see uh, transformation once people, uh, I guess, c- c- go through a role play and see that we can have a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Role playing, I guess, because you're trying to generate uh, or trying to have people feel the emotions. That's important, right? You can't yeah. you can't learn about a conflict, I guess, in an antiseptic yeah. way. Yeah. Do you want to do a role play with me, Tom? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you're you're very willing to to have said yes. Most yeah. people, when they hear role plays, <laughs> their eyes roll or they throw up in their mouth a little bit because yeah. it's. Sometimes the idea behind it is that it's somehow fake or that it's make-believe. Role plays only work if you put your full emotion and intention into them, right? So you act as if it's real. And the usefulness of that is it reduces the, the amount of risk that we have to take in that moment, right? A role play helps us feel what it's like and to practice these skills without all of the risks that comes with doing it in those really crucial, important relationships and that type of thing. So I find role plays potentially to be really useful. Yeah. You do one and you did one in class about a family vacation, I think. Was mm-hmm. it, am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do a number of different ones, but one involves, um, you know, wanting to go somewhere on vacation. So imagine you and your significant other um, are in college because this is the situation that many of my students are in. They're in college, they're busy. So I have them imagine, you know, what if you've, you've spent the last couple of weeks working really hard and taking a bunch of tests and writing papers and you're starting to feel really kind of burnt out. So one day you go home and you say to your significant other, have you, have you seen the kayak paddle? Um, and they, they respond, uh, no, why? Well, I, I really just need to get away. I'm going to go up to Bear Lake and I'm going to go kayaking for the weekend. And the, the spouse has, has not seen their significant other <laughs> practically for two weeks, right? And they had planned on, on spending some time together, right? They had planned on maybe going to see a movie or something like that. And pretty clearly in that moment, there's some conflict and attention. Um, I'm, I'm guessing some listeners may have even had something really close <laughs> to this scenario. And then uh, we, we talk it through. We look at how we might handle that conflict. And typically, the first round of role play is just people fall into their old patterns. It's to be expected, right? They become really avoidant or they, or they start to fight, get really aggressive and competitive. Or maybe they just accommodate and give in. Um, but as as we do that and then talk through it, they start to recognize, oh, that is a pattern of mine, and and here's how I was feeling, and here are the consequences of that. Let's try again. And then we start to explore some of these counterintuitive but productive ways of managing conflict differently. Mm. Let's take another break, and then have you go through. Uh, I think the uh, mnemonic device is vocab, yeah, right? Yeah. Let's go through that briefly uh, following uh, following a break, and also and then I want to t- ask about uh, can the, once once you reveal these strategies, can this be writ large? Can we mm. use this in society? Um, so after the break. Growing up, my family would often house Christian missionaries for short periods of time. People would stay with us for a few weeks or a month, and they would just preach the word around town. And 
One of these people ended up living with my family for five years. Eleazar Braley was like the long-lost brother I never knew that I needed. I remember walking to the bus stop with him every Friday to Bible study, and he'd always be reading on the way, and he'd always be very patient with me as the annoying teenager I was. He was always quick to correct my behavior in a loving and peaceful way, and he was a huge role model to me when it came to diligent work, and he's always been there for me. Anytime I've been struggling, I knew I could lean on him to support and encourage me, and I'm happy to say that he's been a mentor to me throughout the years, and I can continually trust him. Finding a mentor that can help guide you through life is so important, and that is why I'm asking you to donate to the John Morris Scholarship Fund. John Morris was a mentor to many, and his legacy continues to support current and future journalism students at UPR. And to donate, you can go to upr.org. That's upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech Contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about conflict, conflict resolution on the program today with Claire Canfield. He's a consultant and senior lecturer in the Department of Communication Studies Philosophy at Utah State University. So Claire Canfield, uh, we've, uh, we've been established that conflict is usually not about what the surface thing is, right? You, you mentioned the iceberg, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about the dishes, not about the toilet paper. Um, and we got into talking a bit about uh, some possible solutions. Let's jump right into that right now. Um, so take us through briefly uh, vocab. Yeah, I'd love to do that also with a few. <laughs> um, these these elements of vocab, this process of dealing with conflict differently, I think it's important for, to, for me to mention that none of them are intuitive, meaning they don't come naturally. They're not the first thing we think of or perhaps want to do in conflict. And that makes them difficult, right? Because... When we have to do something counterintuitive, it requires a lot of energy and focus and and attention. And so these are things that don't work as like an easy life hack of like, now that I understand these, I'll just be able to do them. But they are something that once you understand them and begin to practice them in conflict, then they can unlock the gifts that conflict holds, right? These counterintuitive processes bring a gift both to you and the other person, and they help to facilitate these things. So to help people remember it, I created the acronym VOCAB, which stands for Vulnerability, Ownership, Communication, Process, Acceptance, and Boundaries. And it's arbitrary the way that I put it together because I just wanted it to spell a word to make it easier for people to remember. I mean, I could have flipped the whole thing and turned vulnerability to some word that starts with end and then it would have been bacon and a very delicious <laughs> acronym. But but I, I, I want people to understand that it's not about going through it step by step. You don't start with vulnerability and end with boundaries. It's a fluid process. It's one designed to help you recognize where you're at at any given time in a conflict, where you're stuck, and how to get unstuck, how to unlock the gifts that are there. So for example, a good place to start in vocab is often ownership because a common place that people get stuck is blaming other people. 
and it's intuitive, right? When, when a problem arises and I've got an issue with the dishes, what's my first intuitive response? My roommates should do their dishes, right? And it seems very logical, very intuitive to think that way. The problem is that it doesn't seem to work. I don't know if you've had much success in this, but have you ever like kind of gone into a conflict and spent most of your attention focused on what the other person has done wrong and blaming them? I think we all have. Has it worked? It hasn't for me. (laughs) I haven't had very many people be like, yeah, you make a wonderful point. This is all my, (laughs) right? Typically it creates defensiveness or people start to withdraw. It, it escalates the conflict. So what can we do differently to get unstuck from that blaming that just doesn't work? Well, we take ownership. And ownership is about sorting through what's mine and what isn't mine. How do I take responsibility and accountability for my own emotions, my behaviors, my desires, the things that I need, the boundaries that I require to feel safe? All of these things have to be owned if we can do anything about them. And that's why the gift that comes from it is empowerment. When we start to take ownership, we begin to feel empowered to do something about the situation, to start to create change. And this also gives an incredible gift to the other person because instead of feeling blamed, we start to feel a sense of our own competency, right? That that we get to choose for ourselves and that we aren't to blame for everything. And then our tendency, instead of getting defensive and, and counter blaming is we start to look at our own stuff. We become much more cooperative with the other person in, in trying to figure things out. They are beautiful gifts that come from the process of conflict. If we can engage in these difficult counterintuitive processes. Oh, we just have about oh uh, seven minutes left in the in the conversation here. So yeah. uh, you know, take us through as many of the rest as, as you can. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to talk them through. Mm-hmm. I spend sixteen weeks, you know, three hours a week talking about these things. So I, I want to recognize that this is a really brief kind of explanation of each of them, but it might be useful for people to just kind of understand each of them. So an, another important one is the communication process. I remember you you told me as we came in here that you know the best thing on the radio is stories. Because that's kind of how we understand the world is we, we tell stories and they help us to make sense of things. Unfortunately, we sometimes don't just tell first person stories about our own experience, but we tell the kind of stories where we believe we understand everything. We tell the story from that kind of omniscient place where we believe we understand the intents and emotions and actions of others. And so we start to tell stories about our conflicts. And we get stuck believing that those are true. And we shut ourselves off to the, the possibility that we don't really understand the other person, that we don't actually know what they need or how they feel, which makes sense, right? When you understand that conflict isn't really about the tip of the iceberg, there's more going on. How are we going to discover that if all we're doing in conflict is telling our story to ourselves and other people? You know, we, we, begin, we begin to have these dueling monologues instead of dialogues. The, the communication process is about asking, listening, and then expressing. We have a tendency to rush to expression. I, I, I need people to understand me. If we first start with a question that is open and honest to 
explore what is the truth and the reality and their story and listen with our full body and trying to understand it totally transforms our conversations. The gift that it gives you is a sense of understanding. And oftentimes we do not gain understanding from our conflicts. We just gain polarization. And when we ask, listen before expressing, we gain understanding and it gives the other person one of the most beautiful gifts we can offer someone, which is to be seen and heard. I think so often that's all we hope for in conflict is just, can you see me and understand what I care about and what's happening for me? It's a beautiful gift to give and what it facilitates is change and new opportunities. The B is for boundaries. Um, We have to have boundaries because we're not safe without them. And it's also not possible to create intimacy without these boundaries. Intimacy starts with no. (laughs) not just letting people do whatever they want. So a boundary helps protect our values and those things that we care about while also giving us a choice on when we let people in and are vulnerable with them, right? The V is for vulnerability. It's opening ourselves up to be seen, sharing our emotions, our, our our desires, our needs. And when we do that, we feel more authentic. And it's an incredible gift of trust to other people to share who we are with them. And that facilitates connection. And then the A is really hard work. It's acceptance work. It's being grounded in reality. And unfortunately, many of us, um, as M. Scott Peck would say, will sometimes avoid reality at all costs. When good mental health is being grounded and accepting reality at all costs. Because in reality, we can make better choices but in, in conflict, we often want to control other people. And it's a fantasy to think that we can. Um, I've tried it. I've got kids, and they have <laughs> taught me very clearly that I'm not in control of other people. Right? Um, so when I, when I let go of trying to control and I accept that there is going to be grief in the process of change, then I can have the gift of serenity. Right? I, I, I no longer feel chaos and conflict, but I feel serene. And the gift that it gives the other person is their own sense of independence when I stop trying to control them. And that facilitates peace because peace is not an absence of conflict. It's an enduring commitment to nonviolence, even in the face of interdependence and difference. And if we can do that, we, we, I'm not going to have to talk so much about de-escalating conflict, right? If we can do the acceptance work where we stop trying to control each other, stop doing violence to each other, that's when we have peace. Just uh, about a minute left. Um, so you, you, you have said conversations that need to happen one-on-one are being put on the public stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, this work that you're talking about, it, it, it's one-on-one, right? Ideally, that's where it is. Oftentimes. Right? I mean, certainly you can use this in larger settings, but when you realize that conflict is about things we really care about and oftentimes are about our identity, when you put someone on the spot and when you, when you threaten their sense of self in a really public setting, it is, (laughs) that is a really difficult spot to think that you're going to have any sort of um, positive resolution or outcome from that. So I think sometimes a lot of these conversations do need to start one-on-one. Yeah. 
So um, a lot of things to sift through. Where can people go to find some of these uh, concepts? Yeah, so where where best to go? They can find my uh, TED Talk on YouTube if you um, Google Claire Canfield. You can also find it on the TEDxUSU website. Um, you can find my consulting page at canfieldconsulting.net. Um, I've started to teach some community classes that are available to folks to be able to share this with people outside of you know the USU classroom. So that's a few places they can find me, and I've, I've got other things happening. So if they want to um, look for me on Instagram, um, they can also kind of receive updates on things that I'm doing. All right. Some good contact points. Uh, very important always, but especially these days. So uh, thank you. Claire Canfield is a consultant. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Communication Studies and Philosophy at Utah State University. Again, ClaireCanfieldConsulting.net. Uh, and his TEDx USU talk is called The Beauty of Conflict. Claire Canfield, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll go out, as we always do, on a Thursday with uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. Skywatcher Leo T. here. Look up, look around, and get lost in space. Way lost. And we can once again go farther out, or is it further, as the Hubble Space Telescope is back up and running thanks to NASA scientists who know how to think through a problem and solve it. That's using the old bean. Keep it up. Hubble, as you know, is responsible for taking some of the deepest and most amazing space images of all from high Earth orbit, including what looks like an empty spot in space in the constellation Virgo, but when imaged produced a huge flurry of galaxies way out there. And this week a couple of minor meteor showers peak and the Perseids begin a few at a time and grow and crescendo from Piamissimo to Mezzoforte on the nights of August 11th and 12th. It'll be very many an hour and keep an eye out for some colorful fireballs that are created when the meteors hit the Earth's atmosphere. And near Virgo, but higher in the east, look for the fourth star of the Summer Triangle. Yeah, I know that's not a triangle anymore, is it? The next brightest star, though, near the Summer Triangle, is Razzlehag, which is the head of Ophiuchus. Once you find the triangle above the mountains, the slick rock or rolling ocean, how do you do that? Well, you raise your eyes high to a spot. Bright, sparkling white blue vega. You can't miss it. Look to the lower left of it for big yellow white Deneb. It's big. Then, to see the other point of the triangle to the lower right of Vega is Altair, which is a nice white giant. Next, it's Razzlehag. It's three-fifths to the right of Vega and three-fifths upper right of Altair. It's a blue-white star that needs a little company, and so it hangs with a triangle. And now we have a giant flattened quadrilateral. And on this date, July 30th, 1971, Apollo 15 completed its mission July 26, 1971 to August 7th, 1971. This mission was the longest one to date to stay on the moon, with a greater focus on science and other landings. Apollo 15 featured exploration with the first lunar rover of the mountainous Hadley-Apennine region. They set up and activated a lunar surface experiments, many of them, and one of those was to set up a reflector to reflect lasers from Earth to precisely measure the distance and wobble of the Earth and the moon, and possibly be able to predict earthquakes. David Scott, James Irwin, and Al Worden were the crew, James Irwin penned one of my favorite books by an astronaut. It's worth looking into. It's called To Rule the Night. Very descriptive. Irwin graduated from Earth and Salt Lake City's East High School. A moon rock from the mission is on display at the Gateway Planetarium. That's kind of amazing. Go see it. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. Native American tribes of North, South, and Central America consider the jaguar especially in its Black Panther form to wield powerful magic. Shamans would invoke jaguar power to heal diseases or find power to overcome enemies. 
And in the highlands of Mexico, it symbolizes the sky, heaven, and divinity. The Tucano and Cobuya people of the Amazon use the stars that others call Cetus the whale. They see a jaguar in the sky. It's hanging out with water-related constellations, Aquarius and Pisces. Look for these faint constellations above the horizon in the southeast. They're out of the galactic plane, so that's way out in space. And you can see many galaxies, distant galaxies, I guess, if you have a telescope or uh, you're in a really good dark spot. They're visible because it's unobscured by dust from the Milky Way. So keep your imagination and hope alive as we look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on Utah Public Radio, UPR, with translator station statewide and streaming live. Pretty much any African-American entertainer from a long era of this country's history had to start out on the Chitlin' Circuit. We as a people, as a black people, couldn't go to the nicer club. They had nicer club, but we couldn't go in there. A significant milestone in the birth of rock and roll. That's life on the Chitlin' Circuit. That's the road to rock and roll with me, Bobby Rush, on the BBC World Service. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.